Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast we started when we had no airshows to review. My name's Sam and joining me tonight is... Tom. Um, we have a guest with us on the show this evening. Um, joining us today is Eskil Amdahl, a former Norwegian Air Force F-16 display pilot, F-35 test pilot, um, classic jet pilot, warbird pilot, currently working for the Flying Bulls based in Austria. Um... I think you have a logbook probably longer than I am tall. Um, I don't know if I've missed anything off there, but uh, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I mean, first of all, would you be able to just sort of give us a, a rundown of your career and, and where where life has taken you? Yeah, okay. So, um, obviously, I grew up in Norway. Um, I think my flying career kind of kicked off when my cousin landed his, uh, um, well, it wasn't his, but it was the Norwegian Army's, um, well, UH1B in our in our um, in our garden in the in the farm I used to to uh, grow up in, and I was about twelve, I think twelve or thirteen, and it was it was a pretty mind blowing moment for me, and um, and I started flying model airplanes, uh, and uh, I set my mind that I you know this is so cool that uh, I really had to try and see if I can I do a similar thing, so. Um, so yeah, and I was uh, then taking you know STEM subjects at school and uh, college, and um, got through the Norwegian um, military system. I did a year in the army as a recon soldier, uh, actually, which is uh, probably an unknown fact, but uh, it kind of helped me get a feel for what the military is and also the basic stuff before you, so that we didn't have to worry about. I mean, just focus on the flying and, and try to get through uh, in the flight training and the screening, and um, and I and I did. But you know, <clears throat> during the screening flying, you know, it was a sub safari. It's called uh, I think it's T seventeen or MFI mm, yeah. dash fifteen, a shoulder wing airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just great fun. It's just as aerodynamic as a milk jug, but <laughs> it was it was brilliant at the time, and. Uh, but in the F-16s, we're doing touch and goes during our, our training. It's like, that is pretty cool as well as helicopters. So I was just putting my head down and, and trying to get through, and I did. And um, yeah, I, I uh, was lucky enough to get fighters. I, ch- I chose that as number one uh, uh, choice. And um, and yeah, that took me to Shepard Air Force Base in 95, um, onto the F-16 after that. and. Um, Three years as a tornado exchange in the RF 11 squadron up at Leeming, um, and uh, yeah, some a couple of years at the academy uh, to finish off the degree because it was separated by the, the timing of the slots that we had in the states, and uh, and um, yeah, in 2007 um, it went across to the states for uh, a US Navy test pilot school. Uh, slot there and um, and then I spent you know 2008 until another seven years down in Shell um, Air Base um, as a test pilot on the F-16 mainly uh, some other platforms but also a project um, officer test pilot on on the F-35 and specifically the drag shoot development okay. and, and also the uh, the joint strike missile so um it's uh, 2015 to 2018 took me to the states to to be a part of that development, which is which is a, a, amazing and and possibly a highlight of my military career for sure. Uh, to be walking in this 
the hallways of Chuck Yeager and hearing the sonic boom and, and being part of the squadron there. Um, so then uh, I thought, okay, well, um, this is as cool as I think it can get in the military for me as a test pilot because you do pigeonhole yourself a little bit and um and i was again given an opportunity to to work for airbus um uh, as a as a test pilot there uh, on the tornado uh, eurofighter and also the commercial aircraft and mm-hmm. um and uh, and that was fantastic but uh, you know during all this time all my my final project at test pilot school was um, the p51 and um, ever since I came back from test pilot school, you know, I started flying displays and, and more and more vintage aircraft and all this was just then growing. Um, so I, I took on a, a position as full-time with the Flying Bulls here in the, yeah, early, uh, early last year. And um, yeah, still loving it. Okay. Um, I have to ask straight away, you said that the last thing at the test pilot school was the P-51. Why? <laughs> Yeah, so um, t- test pilot schools are generally based on the same uh, platform. It's usually half of the year is performance and the last half year is flying characteristics. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being, you know, the French, the British, or the Americans, or, you know, they're all based around the same thing because you need to know both or, you know, them together. And um, mm-hmm. But the, the final project is that... Um, uh, you're, you're giving a mysterious airplane that uh, you'll uh, you'll get a few days um, notice, and you have to write a test plan, um, which is you know largely seventy eighty pages, uh, and then you have to present this to a board. And why are you doing these tests? Test matrix, um, uh, safety analysis, uh, etc. And then uh, and you go out and fly this airplane uh, for two or three flights. And you usually teamed up with two people. And um, yeah, so so when that when the clock hits, uh, when you when you take off from the first flight, and uh, eight days after that, you have to then present the full report, which is anything from you know between 100 to 200 pages. So it's it's a it's an intense uh, intense thing. But I know that uh, getting into Warbirds is uh, you know. You can't fly warbirds unless you've flown warbirds before kind of mm. thing so then how everyone's got a different story but it's a difficult thing to get into and uh i thought okay well here is i got my chance here and even get the government to <laughs> pay for it so um yeah I did. <laughs> it took a bit of convincing over some time but uh you know i'm a fairly driven person and uh you know it paid off in the end <laughs> so on that on that note talking about obviously you, you, you touched on sort of the process of, of of what what being a test pilot is but you know we all know sort of what te- about test flying and 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 that it's perhaps considered the pinnacle of of a pilot's career or or, or the piloting world but what, what is a test pilot what does a test pilot do what makes a, a, what is needed to be a test pilot so i think i think you have a you have to have um, and, and this is, you know, uh, usually being tested throughout the process of applying and you have to show uh, a, a huge, deep interest into aviation airplanes and also the technolo- technicality because you are, you're embarking on a, on, on a, 
on a tangent of aviation and you're walking away from uh you know the the, the glorified uh, squadron life and the operations and everything and but you cannot usually become a test pilot unless you've had certainly in the military unless you have um fast jet wise is a minimum a thousand hours operational time because you have to have that ballast value to be able to um justify the potential changes and issues with an airplane and uh, so um and, and there are different kinds of test pilots generally it's cat category two and category one and category two is a production test pilot you know you fly flights out of maintenance and etc within the envelope that is uh, considered airworthy for the airplane um category one goes beyond that and then you can then explore uh, the um, the envelope expansion of an airplane prototypes etc and um and, and that, that's what you generally do the full uh, 12 to 15 month course uh, and all the, the military test pilot uh, courses uh, go through this thing. And um, so basically you're going more into the development and making sure the airplane is um, built for the purpose. And, uh, and if it's not built for the purpose uh, or the, you know, what the, the customer is paying, uh, being mm. a, a military or partners or civilian or whatever it is, but but then you need to either change the airplane to make it fit or redesign or you know define the the envelope of uh, of, of of the aircraft to make sure it's uh, safe and uh, and and um, there's, there's obviously a whole um, bible out there in terms of what is considered uh, acceptable or not and uh, so it's more of a teamwork with uh, very close uh, with engineers and you are from being the pilot that's you know in in and um, in, in you see all these different jokes right you know you have in the military you have a form 700 in the uk or you know form 781 in the american ones and say um for example the pilot's comment was uh, auto land a bit rough and then the, the, the engineer's comment would be auto land not installed <laughs> <laughs> so then a test pilot will be the one that then comes in between and then bridges the gap between the, the pilot and the engineer to then figure out how uh, one if the auto land is installed and how can we tweak it to to be less rough you know so, so that's uh, a little bit uh, part of our test pilot. It's, it's not as glorious and as dangerous as it was in the you know sixties and fifties and uh, those days because uh, are gone luckily. But um, there are some amazing opportunities out there still. But it's also more and more moving towards software and, uh, mm. and all that stuff, which is. Uh, necessary and, uh, and and equally uh i, I guess challenging but uh, maybe not as, as glorious as the, the cartoons uh, <laughs> i think you mentioned when you were talking about your sort of your career and, and your training as a test pilot did you say that you trained with the u.s navy um to be a test pilot and uh if i'm right in in, in what you said is there a difference between say um training to be a test pilot with another air arm, for example, um, 
uh, Kinetic or the Empire Test Pilot School in, in, in the UK, for example? What differences would that have made? So um, I, I, was very, I was very lucky and, and consider myself lucky to go to the US Navy Test Pilot School. Um, and, and all these test pilot schools are, are largely based on the same uh, curriculum because you need to know uh, that performance and, and what that means and you know how do you tweak that and, and write the envelope uh, as such uh, but also you need to um, to know the, the handling characteristics and everything but uh, so they largely are the same but what the difference is uh, is that you on the military ones that you generally use the airplanes that the the service has so empire would then use british inventory military inventory supplied by some civilian ones and and uh, us air force test pilot school would largely be f16s f15s c117s and uh, or c17s and uh, and etc but um, and the U.S. Navy then will be T-45s or you know uh, a boost boosted up Hawk and uh, and you know we flew the F-18. Mm. Um, now these days, certainly in the States, it's it's you know the T-6, the Texan two, the Texan three, Texan two, uh, and also the T-38 still are the you know the workhorses that you spend. But uh, the overall curriculum is largely the same. Um, so, uh, but for me, being raised in in the Air Force way at Shepard Air Force Base and also the F sixteen uh, world, it was it was great to see you know the other side of it, you know the Navy side and NATOPS and the procedures and F 18s and and I found it almost uh, as a bit like coming from a small Air Force like Norway, um, it was it was, um, it was more focused on getting the job done, you know, in a small little place. You can our Air Force to be compatible with one aircraft carrier, you know, if you that, um, maybe even half one, <laughs> but, but then you're at sea, you have to make the mission come together. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a massive, uh, you know, tons of bases and everything. You just got to sort it out. So, so, so that was, is quite good to see. And I, I mean, the question I suppose is why was it the U S Navy? Was that a, a an arrangement you had with the the air force or was it a your choice and 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 actually on that note why did you choose to become a test pilot yeah so um that was just down to because norway doesn't have the capacity uh don't have our own test pilot schools they're always gone to the to the states and basically we we buy a slot um and 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 the navy had the first and the best available slot at the time could have been the air force uh it was navy for this time and uh, certainly norway uh, has you know been 50 50 probably um, there's always an air force exchange uh, and there's some other um uh, foreigners as well and, and together it's it's a, it's a great mix and um yeah so um it was it was a dream for me and i always had uh since the beginning, I think, uh, you know, I had an interest to become a test pilot. And then it's hard to put your finger on it, but uh, I think growing up on the farm and, you know, being around machines and, and cars and tractors and combine harvesters and, and for, you know, the bizarre comparison, you know, they interested me and, and see how things work. 
and uh, and also having that inject of, of helicopter early on in my career and and uh, so the whole thing kind of came came together uh, and also the interest of, of learning new things every day and, uh, and and seeing the you know the possibility to fly different airplanes mm. uh, so that was a huge driver for me all that together I think. Did your experience as the uh, uh, an F sixteen display pilot have any bearing on that? Did you sort of you know, work up a display, and did that help you in terms of the experience you had from that, or did that really sort of fire you up and think I, I want to do you know test pilot stuff? Um, no, so it, so so I did the the display was in two thousand twelve, so actually four years after I became oh. a test pilot. So. Right, okay. So, but it all comes together. So we obviously, Norway didn't have a huge, you know, display budget and has been uh, dormitory for many and many years. And, and uh, but this was a centennial celebration in 2012. Um, but we obviously tried to keep the cost down. So I was flying clean, clean airplanes. Um, very often, the majority of my flights was in clean airplanes. and. And without any external stores or tanks or anything, so I was very used to it. And then, um, uh, so I was trying to use, you know, if you had some extra fuel at the end of a test flight, and the, the, the you know, in, in my view, the airplane was completely uh, satisfactory airworthy wise, I could then spend the extra fuel to do a bit of training. And so, um, so that's um, that's how that came together. And, um, because uh, you know, on the squadron, you know, a clean airplane is is uh, is uh, is very rare because it's it's not an operational uh, aircraft anymore, and uh, so then it would require a, a demodification of the airplane, lots of checks and and leak checks and everything of tanks and, and pylons and everything. So so then that is a burden on the squadron that struggles with older f-16s so then it was easy for me then to do the training and work up to the clean airplane before you know they were delivered to the squadron and then modified for operational uh, training and use and that was that really gorgeous f-16 was it the silver undersides and the red white and blue on the top yeah that was it that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah i was i always wanted a polished airplane i don't know yeah so it was uh it, it was painted yeah. it was um but you know there had to be something more than that so then there was a compromise in the end which is it worked out brilliantly because you know we could show off all sides of the airplane and um yeah that was uh, an amazing time so mm. there was a lot of displays that season and a lot of training and uh, so it's always going to be a, a big uh, a part of my my career yeah. um and go on to the other part that you were obviously doing i assume concurrently um or, or around the same time was the the work with the f-35 and you mentioned um particularly doing stuff with the the drag shoots and and clearing those for the aircraft um, and what I'm quite interested to know how how do you devise a test program uh, for something like that? Obviously, which I, I think is is unique to the Norwegian Air Force. It is at the moment. I think um, you know a few weeks ago the the, the, the Finns uh, decided to buy the F-35, and I think part of that is uh, the drag shoot. Uh, they obviously have harsh winters, as as we do. Okay. Um, 
but Norway has had a drag shoe since the uh, you know the fifties, the, the early days of it, yeah, almost you know, because it's the, uh, the the Thunderjet, the Sabre, you know, the F five, the F sixteen, the F one hundred four. They all have had drag shoe because of um, maybe not so much any longer, but the possibility is still there that we fly on an icy icy runway, and we need to be able to stop. And as you know, brakes. Uh, don't really work that well on an icy runway, and um, and so that was a requirement uh, that the Norwegian Air Force uh, set in in the, in the purchase. And then we were then obviously with the experience, we were then uh, involved very early in, in the in the concept of which how do we do it? You know, does it come underneath the airplane, or uh, how how do we do it? And um, so we ended up with that little upside down canoe or that, you know, uh, that uh, drag chute box at the top. Well, I mean, I mean, it can elaborate as much. How did you come to that decision? What, what, what were you oh, looking at all, in deciding those about, kind of things? You know, uh, it has to function from, um, if, if you put it away from, you know the the center of gravity of the airplane and the chute comes out it's going to either then you know pull the airplane way up uh and or you know if you have it underneath you will slam the airplane down it's like if you look at the f-104 for example um i always land the airplane put the nose down so it's in a three-point attitude then uh you deploy the chute because if you deploy the chute uh, and that gives obviously a massive force when you deploy that chute at let's say up to 200 and 200 plus knots it's a massive moment that you then have to to uh, arrest and if the flight controls don't have enough control power to arrest that moment you're gonna you're gonna then um, potentially destroy or damage the airplane so so that's one starting point that's one inject uh, and also it has to it has to be, uh, be able to fit in a position of or a place on the airplane where there's enough structure mm. to bolt this thing on so it doesn't you know rip a tail off or you know so then you look at well, where can we fit this in the f-35 do we have a strength strengthen certain spars or etc and then we did and uh, and if you look extremely closely and get, get close to an f-35 you can probably see the difference but but what we did in the end is that we made it uh, removable, so we can, you know, we could take it on and off, mission dependent. You know, if you go to the desert or you know you don't need it, then you can take it off. Um, and um, so, so that's that's part of it. And but then and then it's also how do you how do you open it? How do you release the chute? How does it come out? How mechanical? How complicated should it be? Should, should it be quite simple and robust? Uh, or you know, should be more sophisticated, and and there's a lot of trial and error, and, and mm. I think it take I think it took eight years before we uh, before we even got to deploy one. So oh, wow. uh, there's a lot of traveling back and forth to the states, um, design review meetings, both in, in in Norway and in the states. And 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 as a test pilot, you're involved in those technical and structural decisions and discussions, and as well as the flying itself. Yeah, so then um, engineers from Norway, colleagues of me, we then travel, um, you know, avionic engineers, structural engineers, uh, and, and there would be different meetings. And then that would be also with 
majority would be the you know, manufacturer Lockheed Martin, but also then uh, U.S. Air Force and, and others. And then, and then at the same time, you also have to think about the ergonomics and how do you how do you work this into the cockpit. And obviously, we had some good good um, experience from from the switch uh, placement and 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 the, you know different actions to switch or you know a, a three way or two way switch and, and all that stuff where we would be placed uh, in in the cockpit and because um, it's uh, hydraulically moved um, uh, in the F thirty five in the F sixteen it was just. Uh, um, on the electric, they would, you know, pin that would pull out and it was spring loaded and poof, it goes. So in the F 35, it's a bit more complicated, but at the same time, it made it simply enough that it it, um, it pulls out a pin as it goes up and, and out it goes. So mm. um, is that a static process? So the the drag chute, it's it's on the Norwegian airframes at the moment, and, and as you say, the, the, the fins um, seem to want that sort of included as well. Is it sort of okay? Brilliant. We, we've sorted that out. Excellent. We don't touch it again. Or is that under constant development to refine it? Maybe you know, if if new materials are available, to reshape it or redesign it, and then go through a whole new program of testing. So, um, as far as the the envelope of the of the shoot uh, is probably not necessarily to retest it um, unless you figure out that actually we need. You know, you know, we'd like to deploy the, the shoot at a higher speed or you know, more crosswind, for example, etc. Then, then the, the usually the the development would be the shoot materials and and the sustainment process of it. That, you know, you use the same shoot, you know, you know, 100 times instead of 50 times, or you know, that sort of thing in development. And and that I, don't quote me on the number, but I think you know. They, they did a lot of modification on the F-16 shoot over the years, obviously more intense in the beginning, in the first few years, so then it tapered off to a bit towards the end, but it's always, you're always looking at better ways of, um, you know, material, how to use it, how to pack it, store it, dry it, because, you know, in, when, when you deploy on a, on a slushy, icy runway, it gets soaked. And then you have special towers that you hang them up and then they dry overnight and then obviously you have a lot of spares just um, sitting on the side in the house ready to be just put on and uh, ready to go so it's part of the yeah you fill the gun with some bullets but you also fill the drag sheet mm. and, uh, and, and fuel so it's just to be mission ready again as soon as possible and obviously part of that it presumably there's just a lot of repetition involved in the job but you know, you you said earlier that it's it's a lot safer now than it was in the fifties and sixties and all of that. And, but there presumably is still the potential for something to go wrong. Not even you know catastrophically or emergency, but y your job is is to be able to you know offer corrections for these for things that go wrong. But what do you when something does go wrong or something happens that you're not expecting? What are you doing in the cockpit? You know, how are you observing that? How are you um, making notes, etc. Yeah, so um, some some of the high risk points that we were doing actually were the t high speed taxi points on ice, and we took the airplane um, uh, to Alaska. So from Edwards, we flew it to Alaska to 
to uh, IELTS on Air Force Base and did the testing there over the winter down to minus 40 and we're actually making ice instead of removing ice you're making it and then there's a lot of signs you know to get this as slippery as as we wanted to and and uh, so you know we have to then so we then also as a bonus to certify the airplane for moving it around because we have to taxi it and move it around um but it found that the airplane is a lot more stable it's incredibly stable you know more a lot more stable than f 16 because it's you know heavier you know wider wheelbase got two tails and, and this is a fantastic airplane like that some of these things right you know it's um it's we have a support of a lot of engineers that download gigabytes per second you know of data uh, and analyzes this and, and they're all different trades and they all have speaking voice on the radio in case they see something <clears throat> so so uh, and this is called telemetry right so i would speak in hot mic and that would be transmitted down to the control room and encrypted and um and they would have to then use the radio to then speak to me but everything i say so i either speak i talk to myself and i repeat to make sure that you know we got everything lined up for the next test points so you look at tolerances and and obviously in the beginning you can then look at you know having really really tight tolerances to make sure that any divergence is corrected early instead of too late if, if it goes uh, exponential and you can't save it. So then until you get to know the airplane's behavior a little bit and if you then, um, and all these things generally are are modeled in, in, um, in CFD before we even go out there and do it in the airplane. In the, in the what, sorry, did you say? Yeah, in CFD, computational fluid dynamics, computer okay. programs. So, um, and they become incredibly accurate. It is, it's, it's mind blowing to see, but every now and then, you know, they don't do what the airplane, uh, or they don't predict what the airplane actually behaves like. And then you have to update models and etc. And, and that's why we still flight test. And that's why mm. we have to flight test airplanes, um, forevermore in, in my mind. And. And, uh, but you can obviously make the test programs cheaper by doing less test flights just to go out and, and verify some of the points and certainly the critical points. But um, but yeah, so, um, so some of the test points are too dynamic for the, the control room to then tell you that you need to do something because something's developing because you, you, you've already sorted that problem usually by then. By the time these seconds go past and they'll can tell you but what they can do is they can look at trends uh and and then you, you know for example you know an, an overheat or a, a battery overheat or, you know certain certain things that they can see because you don't have all these parameters by any chance mm. uh, and and my little brain wouldn't have the chance to keep up with it anyway yes yeah, so it's, it, it's incredibly rewarding to be a part of that team and I was lucky to be uh, you know, part of that um, uh, 461st flight test squadron and, uh, and um, yeah, the uh, ITF integrated test force on the F-35. And, um, so that's, um, and, 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 but you know, some of them, some of the test flights are only a few minutes, you know, a handful of minutes. You take off, go downwind, put the gear down, and <laughs> you, you turn the final, everyone's ready and you land and that's it. The test is over three minutes <laughs> so there's a there's a lot of uh, preparation 
for very little flight tests. Mm. So, you know, you end up with um, very few hours and but tons of experiences. <laughs> um, in terms of the uh, Norway's decision to purchase the F-35, um, if, if the F-35 was off the table, of the current fighters, the fourth or the 4.5 generation fighters, call them what you will, uh, so uh, Gripen, Typhoon, Rafale, Super Hornet, F-16, um, which do you think would have fared best in uh, Norwegian Air Force Service, Royal Norwegian Air Force Service? Uh, so that's a political question. <laughs> that's probably not a scope of the podcast, uh, but uh, I don't know, we had a very good um, experience in F-16, but it was it was just time to move on. Um, it's, it's two engines these days. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why they go into two engines instead of four engines on the Airbus, for example, etc. You know, reliability is is you know is up there by two engines, and so there's a lot of extra cost on on the, certainly the you know the Eurofighter and the Rafale, you know, on the engine, uh, and uh, so I think uh, you know I think I think it could be a single engine solution maybe in the end, but uh, but I think. Uh, Norway's experience with the EPAF uh, corporation, uh, and, you know, being part of 4,000, 4,500 F-16 being built, all that stuff uh, becomes an answer to to what the politicians going to uh, sign off on money-wise over 30, 40 years or whatever. But, um, all, you know, it's all strategy and, and politics on your partners and etc. But um, I think most of those airplanes would have done the job as such, uh, but um, you know I'm very happy that for Norway and, and other nations who chose the F-35 because it's such a, it's just that you know it, it has the option to do so much. You know, you have an, an you know a 60 liter bag of tricks instead of a 20 liter bag of tricks, and mm. you never know when you're going to use you know what you find in the bag. So. <clears throat> I, I think it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a great choice and such, but but uh, yeah, it's a, almost an impossible question to sure. answer. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to ask these things. Um, you mentioned Airbus. You 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 worked for Airbus for a few years. What was your job there? It sounded like it was very varied, actually. Um, what was that like? And actually, if it's if we can ask, is is there a reason you left? Yeah. So I mean, it's. Um, it's um, it's based in in, in Munich and uh, north of Munich at the uh, Munching the test airbase, which is you know they built over three hundred F one fours there back in the day and <laughs> lots of history um, and uh, yeah some some I was there on the on, on the fighters mainly uh, but also part of it was uh, and it's the same thing development and, and new modifications on the tornado. Uh, mostly software, new weapons, uh, and also on the Typhoon for the for the Typhoon partners. And you work closely with um, with the uh, BAE up in Wharton and uh, Italians, Spanish, um, and um, so uh, it was very interesting um, 
but it, it is uh, it is different on 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 that side because you're part of the commercial side and you know you obviously have to make the numbers work and uh, and also when covid hit you know it hit hit the uh, the um, the commercial sector very very hard so the so the flying hours were plummeting and uh, and that's you know largely uh, why why I decided to take up a, a different offer um, so it is you know the, it's a brilliant brilliant job and, and tremendous colleagues and uh, interesting stuff but uh, it's one of those things that uh, as a test pilot you you are often seen upon as a as a as a not an oracle but you know you're supposed to know everything you know oh yeah you must be a test pilot you know must and you must know this you must know that and if you if you don't fly as a pilot you know i, I don't consider myself any different than anybody else i just need to practice to be to be reasonable at, at what i do and if i don't get a chance to practice then you know you, you know my, my knowledge fades mm -hmm. and um and so i came to a point that uh I thought that uh, I, I need to f fly more to be comfortable in the cockpit, and um, and uh, sadly, there's another victim of uh, of COVID, I guess, because you know we got tons of hours on on the Airbus, especially up at Hamburg, flying uh, first flights and and uh, test flights of the production line in Hamburg. And then you moved from Airbus to Flying Bulls, is that correct? And you're you're now a full time pilot with them. Yeah, so um, I first met the Flying Bulls in 2012 doing, so we were like a gypsy family uh, hopping from airshow to airshow together in, in Norway. And it's a, it's a great bunch of guys. And, you know, they obviously have a, a tremendous uh, fleet of, of aircraft. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came back from the States in, in 2018 and started with Airbus. It's just down the road. So I just drove down and, and linked up with them again. Actually, I, I, I met them in, in Fairbanks because they run the world's only DC six simulator up there. And I was uh, I was there oh, really? in the test flights and, and one of those you know, down days lousy weather. So then I just drove into Fairbanks and and uh, I did a I did an instrument approach in the DC six simulator. <laughs> well it's more of a link, you know, it's not it's not much uh, to see, but you know, you look at the instruments and uh and it was a fantastic thing. So then so, you know so come and see us, you know, only two hours away and uh, one thing led to the other so then i started flying in my spare time a bit for them down there and i wasn't traveling back to the uk but um but yeah i was uh, offered um, an opportunity to be full-time with them so i've done that and uh, still there and i fly and yeah uh, i mean there's a, lots of different airplanes the sukhoi 29 the extra um the t6 the t28 the p51 uh, the Corsair, uh, I've been flying the P38 a couple of months, mm -hmm. and um, but we also fly the business business jet, the Citation, etc., uh, which is also a, a huge part of it. Uh, but um, and uh, obviously a bigger part now in the winter when the airplanes are in annual inspections in the hangar. And, but yeah, we and you and you fly everything. When the sun coming up and uh, the days are getting longer, and uh, you can start burning some gas again. And you, you you can fly the whole fleet. Uh, no, I'm not qualified on all of them because some of them are you know type rated as such. I could probably fly uh, the majority of the you know and the dual engine, but some of them are type rated. Some of them are um, 
uh, uh, yeah, some of them are you know uh, mm-hmm. November registered, and uh, so it's just a um, it's a bit of a what do we really need people to or do, and what are the missions, and try not to have too many pilots on each airplane because then you know then you don't get to practice enough as mm-hmm. I just mentioned. So then you know, they try to then. So I I mainly focus on the on the warbirds. Uh, based on my experience and certainly the thing the other fighters you know the, the single engine and also the you know it's nice to have another pilot on the p38 in case uh, i don't get sick or you know have to do something else so we have try to have a, 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 at least one one backup that we can then uh, do the missions that we that we uh, are, set, are set to do um which one's your favorite obvious question i know uh, I, don't, I don't have a favorite, uh, you know. I, oh, you uh, must do. Come on, it's another political question. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they haven't spoken about the F one four yet, but that's certainly. We'll we'll get onto that. Don't worry. Very very special, but uh, and uh, and uh, and I I I you know the P fifty one was the first big warbird, and it's very special. The P fifty one is an amazing aircraft. But then you get to, you know, get to love the the Corsair too, which is equally amazing. Um, but I think very very special is to f- to be able to fly the the Lightning, the the original Lightning. Mm. And I think I'm the only one in the world that flies both, you know, or not flies <laughs> anymore. But you know, I've flown both the Lightning one and the Lightning two or three, you know, uh, whatever you see. It. If you, I haven't flown the electric Lightning, but uh, <laughs> I've flown the Lightning one and the Lightning two in American eyes. Well, I was going to say, so you, you brought up the um, the F one hundred and four there, uh, and and UCAR readers will will hopefully remember the article um, from twenty eighteen where I sat down with you in Alborg um, with Helga as well um, to talk about that. Um, and it was a uh, funny year because because you have sort of finally got it on the display circuit and displayed in Norway and then displayed down in Alborg in I think the the worst weather of the whole weekend, unfortunately. Um, and then I think you went down to the Netherlands and then it, it sort of it hasn't flown again, I don't think. Is that right? So we've, um, after the Netherlands, um, we flew back to Norway and then we do the Telemark air show in September. And then um, uh, in October, the, the rocket packs for the seat, uh, the election seat expired. So then, you know, we have to be upfront and, and honest uh, about it. The rules are, you know, based, uh, the permit to fly are very much based on trust. And they, you know, they have a brilliant cooperation with the CA, you know, where others, we, you know, we never get a permit to fly in the first place. So, uh, you know, we put a hand up and say, you know, the suites are expired, you know, we'll try to look for a solution. And, and um, it's very different from American rules, for example, uh, on experimental aircraft, etc. But um, in, in in what way? What are the American rules like? Well, then you know you, you are you are more or less uh, responsible if you choose to fly with expired seats. You choose to fly with expired seats. You really, know, your your own risk instead of. Uh, and and in and in Norway, you haven't pushed pushed the sea that way. But I think there would be a, uh, in agreement with us that. We would need to have the seats operational, as you can see. The US, US I mean the, the UK as well, saying if it, if it's moved on towards that instead of 
pushing everybody to have cold seats and, you know, no one get injured on the ground, looking more to, well, if this airplane, this aircraft was developed with or equipped with, with serviceable ejection seat, it was for a reason. And then you should then seek to operate the airplane as it was originally uh, uh, designed to do. And, and, and Norway is, is very much in agreement with that sort of ethos. And, and, and we are as well. Um, so it's, uh, we discussed this and, you know, we've been trying for a long time since, since then. And, um, and we believe that we are close to a, um, a solution. And um, if, if not this uh, season, uh, late this season, it might, you know, we'll be looking at next year. Okay, that's very encouraging. In. So the the um, the engine is overhauled. Is in Canada. It's been packed up in a container, and uh, so that's that's good to go. We had an, an ignition system that was playing up a bit. Now that's fixed. So both ignition systems are are um, are, uh, are running as advertised, and uh, we just got to get the engine back. Um, you know, which is. And, and all this is hugely costly, even though uh, the engine was, uh, is, is done very, uh, uh, yeah, it was done on a fantastic overhaul to uh, by some enthusiasts and, uh, in, in Canada and, um, and, and done, a, done a fantastic job. And uh, so the engine is good and, uh, and now we're just going to spend some time finding the details around the seat um and then when we get a go on that then we'll start to wrap up the rest uh do some you know modifications that we've been waiting to to do with the airplane and the and they will be the last fighter you know in after burning fighter in in border because you know the air brakes closed the first of january and uh so uh, so we need to keep up the Hmm. We need to keep up the, the fighter noise in, in Buda. But, um, <laughs> but then, you know, then we'll see. Because um, it's a very small team and it's, it's, um, it's, um, we don't, we have a very small budget. You know, we, we, we need to get fuel here and there and to make it all come together. So it's, you can't just travel like a single engine piston Harvard and fly from, Airshow to airshow, it requires a huge uh, support uh, crew around it, equipment and starting carts and, and mm. that stuff. So it's 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 a it's a, it's a big deal. Um, so, but you know, the, the aim, um, which I think is closing to um, a solution, is to fly the airplane again, and then and then we'll see uh, from then on. Mm -hmm. It's it's impressive, isn't it? How um, uh, Norway and, and, and Sweden are able to operate such complex, classic afterburning jets. You know, obviously the the Swedes have their um, historic flight as well. It, it, is is there just a, a particular sort of ethos that allows that to happen? Because in in the UK, obviously we, we've got a, a what, what feels like a much more stringent approach to operating classic jets. Um, what's the difference between Scandinavian countries and, say, the UK in that regard? It's 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 difficult. Um, it's difficult to to speculate into. I think 
there's a tremendous amount of, of knowledge and experience in, in the UK, especially in air shows, more than most places, I think. But um, it's also a bigger country, more people. Uh, you, you know, I'm not going to put everything into the Shoreham thing, but, you know, a, a good chunk of it is there. Um, and, you know, we haven't had that sort of accident in, in the smaller countries. Um, um, and but it, there's there's a lot of focus on third party, and then you have to keep the public safe. And um, and I think, but, but but I do think the bureaucracy is also taking its toll um, here in the UK and and potentially other countries. Um, and. But it doesn't hide the fact that you know if you come together and look at at, at the risks and and, uh, and and if you can then mitigate the risk by the way that you fly it or you know the the, the people that are involved and and the honesty back and forth and and uh, and I think that I think we get around it because we we um, we have a very good talk and an open relationship with the decision makers in 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 the CAA and. Um, you know, a, a, a trusting relationship is based on honesty and no surprises usually. Mm. And and I think that we uh, we ask, uh, we, we we present what we'd like to do, and then there's a bit of discussion, and then we get approval to do something, and then we we, we do what we plan to do, and and, uh, and nothing more than that. And then that builds trust, and then and then you can continue. Um, and I think uh, it's it's very much you have to. You have to be in it for the for the airplane, you know. Mm. Uh, I love the airplanes just as, as as much as everybody else. You know, is part of that team. They're not just there for the waffles, even though the waffles are there every Monday, and it's a huge <laughs> important part of the of the foundation. <laughs> that Monday waffle and coffee, but um, but um, it's also about the airplane, and. And we're there to to show the airplane to others too, you know. And uh, it's not about me or you know, super happy and, and and grateful to be able to fly and experience it from the inside. But it's you know, people remember the the sound and the smoke and, mm. and, uh, and the shape and everything. And that's what we just gotta keep it, keep showing it to the people. That's mm. that's the aim. And have a good time at the same time. Same with the Swedes. Uh, they have the same relationship, I think. But their organization's a bit bigger, you know. They obviously have more uh, more sponsors. Um, we generally, you know, are very few, and uh, and uh, but they have a bigger fleet and have uh, have done this for a long time, and uh, and uh, and also they have their own uh, aerospace industry and sub and all that stuff. So you know. More of a heritage for the brand of the airplanes, different airplanes uh, than than we have, you know, in the Starfighter Foundation. It's just a lot of for one airplane and, and mm. people. Do you have a type? Is there a particular type that you haven't flown? Whether that's something that is out there in the world now, or or doesn't exist anymore, or or whatever that you would love to be able to fly one day. I think it must be the SR seventy one. <laughs> really yeah it's just because of the the mind-blowing technology around you know the engines and 
the airframe and the way it expands uh, under speed and and uh, obviously I think uh, it's I think if you're cruising at that sort of you know altitude for for a long time you know it gets you take away a little bit of the uh, specifics so you know but it's just a just a fact of of uh, operating such an incredible piece of machinery mm. uh, would be an amazing thing to do mm. yeah. it is quite interesting actually you mentioned things like the way the the skin expands and stuff like that that's a reason to want to fly it i just think that's quite it's quite interesting that you think as much about the technology of the plane and, and the the sort of niche characteristics as much as the pure flying of it yeah no it's uh, it's just a uh, it's just extremely fascinating that they, uh, they just have you know barely calculators you know and, and the ton of the math and the way that they did it uh, the you know the ram effects and you know the unstarts and 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 all that stuff around that airplane it's just uh, it's just incredible and um, so yeah i think uh, i think that's uh, that maybe be the one. Certainly, if you go out in a museum or you know, see there, mm. it's just, it's just incredible. You know, even the size and, but, um, but yeah, I'm just, just a lucky guy to have flown lots of different airplanes, and uh, everyone are you know special in their own way. And, uh, but yeah, and that's, you know, they're all, they're all fast enough to kill you if you don't respect. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so that's what you just got to be, keep in mind. I think that uh, you have to respect them and and and, and fly the envelope. And uh, the envelope is there for a reason, and it's usually been tested and verified by test pilots. And as long as you do that, and then um, have a bit of spare fuel when you land, you know, you'll mm. be pretty safe in the end. I don't know if that's a an appropriate segue actually for the next question, um, but. Uh, people might recognise your name from the news of uh, about a year and a half ago um, when you were involved in the crash of a, a Sea Fury uh, flying out of Duxford um, and we, we, we did ask you beforehand if you're happy to talk about it and you are so obviously it's not just something I'm broaching now um, but yeah I mean c can you talk about that what 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 happened what, what goes through your head in a moment like that yeah, so it's um, um, it is uh, it's surreal when it when it dawns on you, and it tried. Well, I tried to. So um, we took off and then flew a bit north, and then uh, um, Dave Unwin in the back was flying the airplane. So you fly the airplane, I'll take care of the engine, and. Um, and when he's flying around, I, you know, I do a bit of general navigation, make sure we don't any bust in airspace, and and talk to him about what, how he thinks about the airplane and handling, and and then I obviously then have a little bit more time to then look at you know specific instruments, and I can see the oil temperature is coming up a bit, so hmm, that's a bit higher than I've seen before, and then uh, and I said today, let's turn back, don't quite know why it is higher and don't like it and let's just try to get it back and then we can discuss it on the ground and uh, and we're up at five six thousand feet this this time and then uh, um 
they turned around and I took the airplane and um, and um, trying to open the oil cooler to get more airflow and I'm diving down to get more airspeed and more air through to to cool to cool it and um, and uh, but it wasn't having it so it just kept on increasing and um, and then it goes way beyond the red line and. Uh, yeah, so I don't think it was a problem with the gauge because uh, you know it was steadily in, increasing in temperature. Um, but you know, I never know. And you know, it was just a few miles from from Duxford, and there wasn't really an airfield around me that I could put it down on. Uh, I felt suitable. So uh, the engine's running. Um, let's try to make it back to to Duxford. That was my my plan. <clears throat> and then, uh, but then when the oil temperature goes that high the oil loses its property to to uh, well to to cool and lubricate as as required and and hence the oil pressure uh, dropped uh, and I can see the oil pressure gauge starting to fluctuate um, so okay that's not good and a few seconds after that you know and, and I knew this was a potential effect of it. And then the uh, the uh, propeller uh, or the engine over revved uh, uh, massively. Um, um, 30, up to, I saw 3600 RPM, which is incredible. And uh, I think it's 3150 for a few seconds is the absolute max. Anything over that, the engine is is, uh, is ruined. So no, the engine is now bust. Um, so I just, you know, pulled the power way back in the propeller, but you know, obviously, the propeller over, uh, or the the engine over revs because there's no uh, oil pressure to 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 break it. Uh, so the now the the propeller is in fine pitch, and the engine, the airplane is breaking because it's got its massive barn door. It's actually four barn doors because one of the blades is as big as a barn door. Um, and uh, the airspeed is rapidly decreasing. Um, and at this point, it kind of dawns on you, this is not good. <laughs> and then if you find it, um, it's it's a little bit hard to accept that it's happening to me because this sort of, sort of things happen to everybody else. And um, was it the first time something like that had happened to you? Well, you know, I had the engine fires, have a massive fire in the Steerman once, you know, two, three meters of flame, which is not ideal in a fabric <laughs> airplane. And uh, two engine failures in the, in the sub safari, but, um, and, you know, engine failure in the tornado, but, you know, the engine stalls in F-16s a few times, but, but this, this one is serious because it's single engine and without this, you know, you're a glider. And, and not a particularly good one. So it's, uh, in, you know, I, I, well, either I got a jump or, you know, uh, I got a land and, but it happened so quick. This was at 2000 feet and the air, the airspeed had gone from 300 knots to, you know, 250 knots in a few seconds, the massive, massive break. And they, those four blades just stand into the, to the, the airflow and, um, and uh, yeah, just another few seconds after the engine all arrived, I pulled the power well all the way back, 
and maybe five, ten seconds, the engine went this massive bang and uh, blew tons of oil over the windscreen, couldn't see much, and it was obviously ceased and stationary. And um, and I just remember thinking, airspeed, 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 and it's the only thing that's going to keep me alive. So I dumped the nose, um, uh, so I ended up in a 40, 45 degree dive just to keep 140 knots. Mm. Um, and I knew that, okay, well, I come around the hedge, maybe 105 or so. At Duxford, normally, but I need uh, extra speed to maneuver to be able to round out uh, to cushion the, the landing. And let the gear up, of course. <clears throat> but uh, you couldn't see much because it was all covered in oil and I could see a little brown field. And okay, coming from a farm, I know that that's usually pretty flat um uh and the casino is a village behind it another there's another nicer field maybe behind it but i don't i cannot risk not making it because i'll go into the village so i just had to put it down um in in front uh but what i couldn't see at 2000 feet it was a tiny little power line um so i had to adjust for that a little bit and uh and um, yeah, I just said to Dave, you know, we'd be, we'd be, we'd be landing or we have to do make a forced landing and do a mayday call to Duxford, um, six miles away. So it's not that far. Could hold on for a little bit longer. But anyway, um, I think it took about 35 seconds before uh, we hit the ground. So it happens extremely quick. And um, so quick that uh, we, you know, I struggle to believe that in in the real world I'll be able to jump. Certainly, the two seat airplane to then communicate, and you know, the last thing we talked about before we, you know, we cranked up was you know what we have to do if the engine fails or we can't control the airplane. And so we did. Well, we briefed, um, but it just happened so much quicker than than I thought it was going to to be. Uh, so it's a good takeaway, and I try to. To, to tell that as why well, you know I wrote a story in, in pilot and uh, an article just to share awareness of um, of be ready practice it because it will happen mm. and, uh, and you can help yourself by being a bit ready beforehand um, I had uh, two weeks earlier I went down to uh, spitfire.com or the you know the guys down at Bolby at Goodwood and I flew the simulator they're practicing the same thing shutting or uh, shut, you know, shutting down the engine doing forced landings. It's not the same, but the philosophy and that ground rush is the same. Mm. Uh, so the so the airframe as such doesn't really matter. It's the the concept of it all, and and uh, I'm sure that that helped too. And also my my military training focus and single engine time. Um, but I put it down and uh, and uh, yeah, it came to a stop. Uh, at the uh, yeah, the trees at the end, I was lucky that uh, instead of crushing the airplane, it opened up a little bit so I could just step out, sitting on the tube, got the doors open, and you could just step out. You know, <laughs> if you look at the future, it's, it's a bit of an acrobatic maneuver to get in and out of, which is bizarre because the airplane is so big, but the cockpit is super tiny. And, um, and uh, yeah, I was bleeding a lot from my forehead, a scar here still, but. Um, I was, you know, was conscious. I was live talking to Dave. You know, he had his 
you know, he had back issues too, and same as me. And so we just need to get out of this airplane because there's, you know, there's still a 900 liters of oil gas uh, a meter ahead of me. I can smell the fuel and it's like, mm, seen too many movies to, to be comfortable <laughs> sitting around there. So, so we, we got ourselves away probably 30 meters and just laid down shouting at each other and waiting for someone to, to, to come and help. And, uh, lucky, no, no surgery, nothing. And, uh, mm -hmm. you got extremely good care in, in Addenbrooke's and, uh, yeah. Um, I think we both still feel it. Uh, but, uh, that's just a bit of muscle and a bit of exercise mm. and an excuse to keep fit. I mean, it hasn't, hasn't stopped you flying obviously. So no, no, I was up in the Mustang two, two months later. So, so, uh, so yeah, no, I still love it, and I still will will do it. Um, so I've re reduced I reduced the amount of uh, sport bikes, you know, motorbikes. I I ride. <laughs> it's probably come down a bit. <laughs> Compromised to my wife. Uh, you, you've had you, you've had your do over now. So <laughs> yeah, but no, I still love the airplanes. Uh, always will. Mm. Uh, and I can only uh, try to share, you know, uh, the experience of people in the future are a little bit more ready. Um, there's so many, so many, you know, people had similar experiences, and and uh, I think the human mind, you know, it fades a bit, and every now and then you need to have reset your focus. Uh, and if I can help somebody to reset their focus, uh, then that's a, that's a win for me. So one 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 thing to ask perhaps is obviously that was a very rough experience um that crash for you do you think um in hindsight now that the experience has it it, it was in, in a way a valuable experience now for you as a as a, as a flying bulls pilot operating these vintage warbirds it, that a silver lining is that you've got that experience of that sort of super quick you know sort of everything's okay to everything's going south quite quite fast do you think that's a good experience for you to have yeah i think it's an eye-opener because uh i think you'd be more ready uh if there was a a future uh incident because you know how quickly and how quickly you need to make a decision but um i don't think at the time it could have made any different uh and um i don't think even if it happened like tomorrow i don't think i would have jumped because i don't think that would have been a solution, uh, a survivable solution, because I think uh, so. Well, you have to do it before you start before you start diving down. But if you, you start diving down towards the ground, you're committed because otherwise, you know, the chute wouldn't have time to to open. I think, and uh, and you would uh, have too much energy on 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 the impact with the ground. Maybe uh, I think it's still amazing that you know Rob Davis managed to jump out of that mustang when it's hit by the sky right there and uh but uh, you know it, i guess at the time it didn't have much of a decent rate going i guess he was on the verge of really going downhill fast but he managed to get out um but um my heart almost stopped when i had a, a chip light in the corsair a few months later which is like identical same engine and said, no, no, that's not. <laughs> not fair. again. No, that's, that's too much. <laughs> <laughs> this is on the 
this was on the on the way to Kidsville to display at the you know the the Hanen Kamm race there, and this is all you know snow covered Alps in Austria. I was like, no, but uh, I just left the engine and turned back. It chugged along, and and but yeah, sure enough, it was actually producing metal stuff. So subsequently, uh, we changed the engine, and um, and and I think that's also an, another way that we can hopefully change things around on, on the technical side that a, a chip light might have have uh, highlighted the problem with this engine earlier so mm. in time for us to do something about it and just save, save the airplane but um, uh, everything I get to put in my backpack obviously uh, helps in, in, in making me a more experienced aviator but um, and hopefully I you know by by this too, I can share a bit. Um, so uh, so that's great. I can come talk about it. It's uh, that's part of it. So yeah, excellent. <laughs> well, let's finish off by just asking what your twenty twenty two season is looking like coming up. Okay, yeah. So um, the course area is out of maintenance uh, for us. Uh, there's still some. Something to do on the on the P38, and you know they're all coming together. Mustang might take a little bit longer. We're doing some uh, modifications. Uh, they're demodifying it to a military spec again. Um, so uh, that might take a little bit longer. But you know, air shows, uh, bookings, and the calendar is uh, is um, is looking very promising. Um, it's um, I hope uh, and I think. That uh, maybe not a hundred percent back to normal, but it will be it will be um, a lot better than than last year and certainly before. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, um, we already had our first display in the, in Kitsville and uh, and, uh, and we're starting workup training uh, and the final like workup we have as flying bulls. We go a week almost in in the Slovenia. And we have our airfield there for ourselves for a few days, and uh, that's where we all get worked up, formation-wise, solo displays, and then get signed off, uh, DA-wise, and then, uh, and then, yeah, it's just weekend after weekend after that. So uh, it's looking very promising, and uh, we hope to come to the UK uh, a, a, a trip or two or more. We'll see. Awesome. Excellent. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been—I mean, it's been fascinating. So, yeah, cool. Well, I appreciate it. It's—it's uh, it's great to talk to enthusiasts as usual, and uh, we could probably talk for days and weeks. But uh... <laughs> thank you very much. Bye. Cheers. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye.